0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Greetings, everyone. This is Hugh Ballou. Welcome back to a new episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. And in seven and a half years of doing this, almost 300 episodes, We've had very unique episodes. Even people talking about the same topic have much, a much different insight and different things to offer. Um, my guest today is a new friend, a dear friend, who's a very capable leader right here in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he's in the realm of education. He's got background doing various things, but he's uh, He's a very competent leader, and I've watched him in action, and we've worked together. And so I said, Chris, why don't you come on the Nonprofit Exchange and share some of your experiences with those people who are mm, wanting some fresh information, wanting some inspiration. So Chris Bryant from the Central Virginia Community College Educational Foundation and the college, he wears two hats, Um, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, and please tell people about who you are.
1: Great. Thanks, Hugh. And and I'm glad you said that we're going to share experiences and not expertise. I don't believe I have any expertise, but I think we all have experiences we can share and and maybe it gives us uh, something we can all compare our successes and our our near failures with. Uh, With that being said, I hope the next little while we we can be entertained amongst friends uh, and and learn some best practices. Uh, I hope I don't wear you out too much. I can be a bit passionate and sometimes um, enthusiastic and, uh, and and hopefully my rose-colored glasses will will wear off on each of your listeners and and viewers. Um, for me, I live here in Lynchburg, Virginia. I've been all over the Commonwealth with my family, my wife, and my two sons. I've served five nonprofit organizations. Started with the Boy Scouts of America, which is a national brand. Uh, I did grow up in the program, I'm an Eagle Scout, but professionally scouting is much different than the program that we all grew up in as a, as a youth character development program. So I started off 10 years with the Boy Scouts of America, and then I worked, um, and you'll have to know this a little bit about me, my father was a pastor and my mother was a nurse, so I believe that because of those two service-oriented people, uh, champions for all the goodness in the world and love, that, they, that they've sort of put me on the track. To serve people and be involved in nonprofits. And so when I left uh, Scouting, I went to work for an organization at the time was called Presbyterian Homes and Family Services, has now rebranded as Humankind, was an orphanage back in 1903, and is now a multi million dollar organization. That's a family services organization that serves a huge chunk of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And then for several years, we were in Northern Virginia in Falls Church, serving capital caring hospice which covers all of Northern Virginia, most of Maryland, and all of the District of Columbia, uh, and then in Alexandria, Virginia for a while with Goodwin House, which is a senior living facility. It's very similar to Westminster Canterbury if you're from the Commonwealth, and, and now I'm with Central Virginia Community College, both as the Vice President of Institutional Advancement and also as the Executive Director of the Nonprofit Foundation.
0: So it's a it's a standalone 501c3 and very distinctly different identity from the community college, which is um, part of the government, isn't it? It's funded by the government and it's a government institution.
1: I love that you say that because that gets to the heart of some of the things that we want to talk about today about community college being free versus what people really think about community college and private schools. And so let's let's spend a second dissecting that. It's awesome. I have one foot in as an employee of the Commonwealth, of Virginia, and one foot in the nonprofit uh, that is the standalone 501C3 Foundation. Think about University of Virginia. University of Virginia is both a state supported school just like Central Virginia Community College and probably has 50 different foundations that govern all of the different schools of medicine and engineering. So our greatest uh, institutional um, uh, our greatest institutions of education, so UVA, Virginia Tech, Um, William & Mary, JMU, all those big ones here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, they're all state-supported schools. They're not private, so they receive a ton of funding from the Commonwealth, but they also create foundations to help them uh, manage and leverage opportunities to expand their vision, because that's what we're all about as nonprofit leaders. How do we share our story? How do we expand our vision? How do we grow our efforts? So the foundation is a way to do that. So a separate, standalone, supportive industry um, or that's really meant to um, uplift the greater organization. One of your hats
0: is a, a very big hat of visionary leader. And so why is being visionary important for people, especially in this, we call it nonprofit, which is really a dumb word, but a social benefit, or you know, we're, we're in a for-purpose business. So why is it important for us to understand and articulate our vision.
1: I love that you say for purpose. That's so powerful. Uh, well, first of all, all of us are good. And if you count the number of nonprofits that are in existence today, there are tens and hundreds of thousands. We're all good. We're all best of intentions, and we're all um, well anointed. So with that being said, how do you choose one over the other? Because there, there are uh, a finite number of volunteers and champions and dollars. So with that being said, I think one of the things we have to think about is what makes us relevant, what makes us different from the pack, and how can you articulate that? So vision is everything. Um, if you're not growing, you are dying. And I, I hope I don't offend you by saying that. I, my father was a pastor, and I've been in a lot of churches that got smaller and smaller and smaller over the years. Um, uh, faith is as relevant as, as it ever been. There should The doors should be open, and the churches should be packed. Any place of worship should just be filled to the brim, but that's not the case. And so what we have to do is the organizations that can have a vision and share their vision and empower others to be engaged in delivering that product and that vision and consuming that goodness um, will prevail. And just because you do it well today, doesn't mean you'll do it well tomorrow. So vision truly is everything because it always has us on that purposeful pathway of growth. So I think we're each on that pathway um, personally, and we wanna be that uh, that same pathway of success with organizations as well.
0: So you've had um, a good history of really important um, work experiences behind you. And you came to Lynchburg for this job, I'm guessing. It's you, how, how long have you been in this position?
1: Uh, just over three years now.
0: Wow. So my experience, I mean, you actually let me in front of your board. Uh, my experience it's a very, is that it's a very high-performing, very engaged, very professional board of directors who understands being a board of directors. I have found in my work of 33 years doing this, there are very few boards that understand how to be the board. So was that that way when you came or were you part of that transformation or have you been part of an upgrade in that process?
1: Well, I think you're exactly right. We do have a board of, there's about 23, 24 directors. They're all presidents and CEOs or folks of prominence in their their working careers, um, with that being said, I think we've been on a journey together that started a little bit before me. Um, we had great board leadership before uh, my entry into the college. And then since then, um, whenever there's a transition in the executive leadership, there's usually a little bit of transition in the board leadership as well. You, you see that there are board members that are, one, or endeared with the professional staff, or two, they just use that as an opportunity to check out. You know, I've I've been doing this for five, six, 10, 20 years Um, There are natural transition points, and so if you're if you're doing your your jobs correctly and you have those transitional moments for staff you're going to have those for board as well. One of the biggest things you're going to do is transition your top leader and for us we transitioned our board chair. And it went from a gentleman who had been our board chair for five or six years and went to someone and I believe this makes all the difference in the world. We transitioned to a board chair who not only was qualified for the job, you know, the the affluence and the influence that we all want a chairman to have. And we want uh, her or him to also be able to tell the story. Well, Um, our new board chair is an alum of the college. They are a consumer of the product, not only from themselves, but also his children have attended the college. So I believe that gives him a very distinct position, not only as an industry leader that wants to see a a pipeline of talent um, produced for local industry. And then also we all believe that education is gonna uplift the masses. It's the one thing that will get us out of poverty. Education is the key. Dr. King said that. Many folks have said that in the past. Um, We all believe in the mission, but what makes us different, I believe is that our number one champion, our volunteer board chair, was a consumer, is currently a believer through direct contact, and is able to share that vision and passion with others and then recruit, recruit, recruit. If you're not asking on a daily basis for something, um, we're just not doing our jobs right. Out
0: there, out in front, being assertive. Who would have thought? Now, (laughs) you've put a business perspective, but you've also put a relationship piece to this. So, um, I got to observe a board meeting um, in the past, and just a few months ago, and my experience, I sat in the corner and watched, and everybody leaned in, everybody had, they were prepared. And When they had a report, boom, you called on, you didn't dominate, you, you just facilitated the process, but people were ready, they were engaged, they were enthusiastic, and you were done in an hour, <laughs> the, the relationship between the executive director and the board is unclear in many circumstances. There's this sort of standoff. Can I do stuff? Do I need permission? So describe your relationship with the board and how you lead. And the board is not responsible for the organization, the finance, the governments. You actually run the organization. So talk about your relationship with the board and how you've cultivated this, this high-performing uh, perspective and attitude and engagement. That's so good.
1: Hugh, I appreciate you saying that. I, we, we are good. The volunteers are fantastic. And let me tell you why we're fantastic. One, because we all clearly know what our expectations are. I mean, everybody wants to be successful. And the way that we become successful is we uh, define our goals and then we work toward it. You got to have those steps um, to accomplish our, our, our goals. With that being said, I believe every board meeting is a three-step approach. So let me try to um, simplify it for for folks like me that need it simplified, um, we have quarterly board meetings. And so leading up to that quarterly board meeting, we're going to have regular touch points. We have committee chairs. The true work of the board, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to, and I'll work backward, if you want to keep that board meeting to a one-hour meeting, it needs to, the work needs to be done prior to that. And so there's no way we can have that 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. meeting without the work being done early. So if you're not getting work done early, then you're going to have to sort of reshape the way that you think about business. So our committee meetings are two weeks before the board meeting. That consistency lets our committees know when they're going to meet. It gives them time to, one, prep for their meeting. And then if there's any action items that need to happen between the committee meetings and the board meeting, it gives us a little bit of a window for that to happen. At the committee meetings, that's where the true lion's share of the work happens. We schedule those meetings for an hour meeting. Sometimes they run to an hour and a half or two hours. That's where the true goodness is happening. For our board, we, and here's a a saying that I absolutely adhere, keep it simple, stupid. It's the KISS mentality. Keep it simple. When you're keeping it simple, we have four committees. Our committees are finance, governance, scholarship, and resource development. Each of those committees have a chairperson. That chair, for that meeting to be successful, the committee meetings two weeks before the board meeting, I have to meet with the committee chairs for an hour to answer their questions, to get them prepped, and to tee them up for success a week or two before their meetings. So that three-step approach, Hugh, I believe is executive director or staff meeting with committee chairs. Committee chairs leading their committee meetings and making that the lion's share of the work, and then the board chairman leading the board meetings that's going to happen for that one hour. If we don't keep it to one hour, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, folks are going to start getting a little frustrated and antsy, and it's not going to allow those committee meetings to really be the meat and potatoes of our work. The other thing is, at 9 o'clock, people are going to get up and start leaving because it's time to go to work. So um, those clear expectations, I think, help us. And I think those three-step approaches to a quarterly board meeting is right for us.
0: Absolutely. And you really shouldn't have a a meeting more frequently than you have a need to have Mm -hmm. a meeting. So you're very purposeful about it. Underlying leadership, the foundation of leadership is relationship. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious to me, you knew everybody there and you had a relationship with each person. And my guess is you could ask them to do most anything. And because of that relationship, they would consider it at least. And most of the time say yes. So talk about relationship with the leader and the participants.
1: Well, I love that. I love that you would say that. I hope that that would be the case. And I do believe because of the value of the volunteers, they would. First of all, I believe in the innate goodness of people. I believe people want to serve and they want to put their expertise and their practice into work. They wanted to come to fruition and come to reality. So number one is you've got to help people be successful. I believe one of the callings as a paid staff or as an executive is to help the volunteers be in a place that they can succeed. Um, I said earlier that you've got to let folks know what expectations are, but Hugh, you're right. Relationships are everything. And so if um, it all too often we'll recruit someone who has finance expertise and ask that person to intentionally sit on the scholarship committee, and they're like, well, wait a second, you know, I'm a bean counter, I'm a CPA, or I'm a, I'm a broker, I need to be on your finance committee. We go, you know, there, there's an opportunity for that to happen, but we, we would like for you to serve on the scholarship committee for a year or two, so you can hear the stories of our students that apply for our scholarships. It's a great touch point where um, maybe not so much the relationship that I build with the uh, the champions is powerful, and it is powerful. The relationship that really needs to be built with our board champions is with the organization and the institution. Um, I hate to say this, but it's another reality. Executive directors and staff will come and go. The organizations are much more uh, viable in the long term. So, our foundation is 40 years old, and the community college is over 50 years old. Uh, and some of our board members have served for more than a decade. Um, I do believe that, uh, you know, in my naivete, that they'll do what I ask them to do because we'll make it fun. I'll respect their time. I'll make them successful. I'll help them be in the right lane. But I think they also do what they do because they see the vision. They believe the impact of their uh, their investment of time, talent, and treasure. And then they believe in the calling of the the institution. Um, education is a great uh, is a great calling. And so each of these folks, I believe, um, will do it because Um, a relationship is is being leaned on, Um, I would ask, a board chair would ask, a committee chair would ask. Um, Oftentimes, I love it when a student comes and speaks to our board. We always have a student address our board meetings at the very beginning of the meeting. At the top of the hour, we carve out five or ten minutes for a student to come in and tell their testimonial so our board champions can hear directly from our board. our beneficiaries, uh, who they're serving. And so I think that's powerful as well. But those relationships are invaluable.
0: All around, all around, all around. So there's, the um, when you were talking to people, you were sharing the story about talking to the volunteers about doing something, there's a specificity in the ask. And there's a reason why you've made the ask. I think we, we all too often are apologetic about asking people when they're there to serve, and we sometimes stand in the way of them really fulfilling their passion to do something, and so I don't know why, but what's the secret to engagement for you? We've, we, do, do you give board members a specific job description, or how, how do you define their duty and delight, so to speak in the Christian context, how do you define their duty and delight They so there's a fit for what they want to do and they can do. So what's the discernment process of getting to that engagement point?
1: Yeah, you know I think there's definitely a philosophy uh, out there that says um, do what you're best at, and then there's the flip side of that is the uh, let's become well-rounded people and work on the things that we're we're no good at. So regardless of where you fit on the paradigm between do what you're best at or or work on the things that you need to improve, I truly believe in the philosophy of let folks do what they do best you're going to have folks on your board that will tell you i'm i like to do public speaking and, and those folks are going to be great for coffee talks and chats and Kiwanis and, and rotary meetings you're you're going to have a skill set of people so i guess i'm I lean into the skill sets of your volunteers a little bit of success goes a long way if someone tells you i want to be a you know a public speaker Uh, for your organization, empower that person to do that. If somebody tells you, look, I'm not going to ask people for money. It's not my forte. They're probably not going to be on your resource development committee immediately. Find a place where they can be successful. Um, I have seen quite a shift away from, uh, of people who say they're not good at fundraising, who become amazing volunteer fundraisers. Our governance chair on our board said, and I won't tell his name, but if you do a little research, you'll be able to find it, says that he was no good at fundraising. And then I looked a couple years ago and he was the chair of a local campaign that was happening and, and he can raise money with the best of them. And so with that being said, um, the, the secret sauce is asking people to do what they're good at, uh, to, to foster um, that that good relationship, and to empower them to do that, stand out of their way. Um, Again, um, all too often we think as executive directors that we can tell our story the best, we cannot. Um, If we tee up our volunteers, if we tee up if, and in my case, I also tee up the college president, if we tee up our best folks to go and sit down and have those best conversations, the goodness is gonna happen. You just have to do the legwork. You have to be willing to wear all the hats, right? Uh, sometimes we're the, the president in the room, and sometimes we're the secretary, and sometimes we're the janitor, and sometimes we're the bus driver. Whatever it takes to get the right people connected to tell the right story at the right moment, um, and we all refer to that as a values alignment. You just want the right people to tell the right story at the right time. Um, it's all the, the, the correctness. Um, Hugh, I'll, I'll, I'll divert a little bit because I want to say this. I in fundraising, I'm a certified fundraising executive, and one of the things they tell us is there is truly a formula to fundraising, the cycle of fundraising. I'll share it with you. It's very easy. Um, I live by this principle, and I believe it goes further than philanthropy or direct fundraising. It's the four steps are identification, cultivation, solicitation, and stewardship. Now, let me go through that again. Identification. Identification cultivation solicitation and stewardship i believe you can use that same thing for board recruitment i believe you can use that same premise for bringing in a new employee you need to identify what your organization needs and the skills of the people that need to be aligned with that position so identification is key who's the right fit who's the right person uh, and then there's the cultivation there's the 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 dating portion of what it's going to take to get this person to understand where you want them to be and how they fit in. So that cultivation is building that relationship that you talked about and really um, uplifting the moment where you're going to do that third step. And that third step's the big one. That's the one that we all focus in on all too often as the most important, but it is important and it does have to happen. That's the solicitation. You have to ask. You have to make the ask, whether that's for a dollar, a million dollars, or for someone to serve on your board, solicitation step number three. And then All too vitally important is stewardship. How do you appropriately recognize and thank the people for what they do, whether that's volunteering um, or or donating, whatever that is, you've got to be able to use those four steps. And if you do it, not only will it work in fundraising, it'll work for you in board recruitment, uh, board engagement, um, uh, enrollment for colleges here. Um, we've got to identify our target audience. We've got to get the right marketing pitch out there. Once they come in, we have to have the right value proposition. And then once they hear, they have to feel like they're a part of a community. So whatever your product, whatever your organization, those four steps, I believe can serve you well.
0: Wow. That's, that's so critical. The, the stewardship part is where we really fall down, staying in touch with the donors, letting them know what's happened with their donation. And then we have been good stewards because we, in our world, we're custodians of other people's money.
1: Mm.
0: And it's a for, purpose, for purpose. So let's go back to um, telling a story. Now, um, there are people gifted at telling story, but there are, everybody has a, a capacity to tell a story with their language. And we don't do enough of that. We, we typically do a lot more good work then we're able to tell people about it. So how do you cultivate this storytelling even with people who think they aren't good at it?
1: Yeah, you know, Hugh, th- there's so much noise in our world these days. There's there's so much either in the backdrop or even in the foreground. Um, we've all heard that there are sort of 50,000 action points a day for our, our young people that are consuming information through their their devices, their phones, their TVs, and then all the the stimulation that's around them. Um, We live in a very noisy society. So with that being said, I think that each organization probably needs to understand a couple of key premises. Number one is what's the best message to share? you got to refine your story, right? And again, what makes it unique what makes it relevant? What makes it stand out? So you you have to refine your story before you can share your story. So really come to grips, go through your identity crisis, go through the work to get that mission, vision, and goals. Um, Hugh, you've been helping us do that, and we're very grateful for you. I, even if you're a forty year old organization, you have to hit the reset button every now and then and say, well, just because I used to do it this way doesn't mean it's going to be successful now as it was decades ago. So. Make sure you're you're listening to your consumers, your customers, your your audience that they are. It's resounding the story you're telling. Because so, if not, you have to go back to square one, which is where a lot of us go. Is how do you hit the reset button and make sure that you've got a good story to share? And then there's the sharing of the story. Now there are as many ways to share stories these days as there has ever been. There are more mediums and markets than ever. We used to have to be very uh, verse. Uh, In our oral presentations and our our public speaking, Uh, that's no longer the case. Any 11-year-old potential scout, a girl or a boy with a cell phone, can make a video and share it with TikTok or on YouTube. Um, I do personally believe that if you're an organization that has consumers that can share direct testimonials, that's more powerful than ever. We want our students to be on our social media platforms. We want our students to be telling their stories directly directly. No longer do you have to rely on a conduit to share your story. Now, of course, if you got a million dollars in marketing money, bless you. Most of us put marketing at the very end of our budget and we spend what's left, Mm. which is usually nothing. Uh, So this marketing thing has always been a a nut to crack. With that being said, it's never been easier to tell our story. But what I would say to nonprofit leaders is, is, number one, examine your story. Make sure the story you're sharing is relevant today. Um, and make sure that the people who are going to consume it, who are you going to send that message to? It's the old telephone game, right? Who are your consumers? Who, who are the stakeholders that need to hear that messaging? And then be very direct and intentional about it, who shares that message. So it's it's the what, the who, and the, and the where is it headed? And so um, I know it sounds so simple. We, we really, um, we simplify it so much that we make it sound so easy. It's not, but uh, getting your story out there could be um, as easy and advantageous as ever.
0: It is a lot easier than we make it. (laughs) The work we do is difficult, but we make it harder. So you talked about wearing different hats and doing different roles. Now, there's a a fine line between doing it and empowering others.
1: Mm.
0: You know, you get good people, you're clear on the vision, you've defined the goals, and then there's a place to get out of the way. So there's in America, I think there's 1.6 million nonprofits Wow! and the Meyer Meyer uh, foundation did a survey that 45% were burned out and leaving. This is before the pandemic. Mm. Now we do that to ourselves by over-functioning. We do things that others could do. So I watched you in the planning session with your board, everybody was engaged, everybody participated. You kind of sat at a, um, uh, position. It wasn't a power position, but when you spoke up, people paid attention because you'd built a relationship and the credibility, but you didn't speak for people. So how do you do this dance of uh, doing enough, but allowing other people to do what they can do, raising to, rising to their level of proficiency?
1: That's a great question. I wish I haven't mastered. I don't, but uh, it starts with biting your tongue and, and shutting up. Um, I got to tell you, for people like us, Hugh and I, and then many that are probably listening or watching, participating, it's hard because we all believe we have relevant information to share. Listening is so important. Um, And and then also choosing the the right opportunity to give information. Um, For an executive director or paid staff, it is so vital to um, share the appropriate information um, up front and then really be quiet, bite your tongue, sit back. Um, You'll know when to sort of lean in and sort of appropriately stir the conversation. Um, Sometimes we call that guiding the conversation. Um, I very, very much stay away from, I used to think that I could control what the outcomes or things were. I cannot do that. I, I used to think that I could, but now I realize that I certainly cannot do that. I've heard people talk about guided discoveries uh, I think only my wife has the ability to do that. She can she can guide me to where I'm supposed to be, but for boards, it does not work. Really what you have to do is have an understanding of where you wanna be and really no concept uh, or preconceived notions about how you're gonna get there because I'm telling you, oftentimes we're wrong. Um, we're relying on our historical knowledge and data, uh, our expertise, our experience about what's worked right in the past. What I've seen in the past two or three years is sometimes those principles are no longer relevant. Um, There are many ways to get to uh, the destination that we're all after. I think oftentimes our job is to tee something up, tee up an important topic, sit back, be quiet. And every now and then if we're off topic, push people back to center on the topic, uh, not necessarily on how to accomplish the goal, uh, and then learn to be quiet again. Hugh, you do this better than most. At the very end, there has to be someone that's collecting the yeses and nos in the data. Uh, There's nothing worse than doing great work for an hour and two and then walking away and nothing happens after that. So um, ensuring that there is appropriate follow-up as is as important as anything. Um, We all wanna hear ourselves talk and we all wanna give information, but then it comes to the very end of who's gonna own this? Who's gonna take this and run with it? That's a, that's a very important ask at the very end of the conversation. And then after you say, here's what we're saying, here's what we want to do, here's going to own it, here's we're going to come back and talk about it again.
0: That's a whole sequence that <sighs> doesn't always happen, but it's crucial. So my last topic is um, competition uh, versus collaboration. Now, you know, we, we think we got our own little silo, we got our own volunteers, our own donors, but guess what? they support others. So what's the, what keeps us from collaborating in community?
1: Yeah, just our own stupidity. I think we, uh, you know, I, I'm a very competitive person, so I'll sort of speak out of both sides of my mouth. I, 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 I think the first time I took the myers Brig uh, study, somebody, uh, they were revealing the studies through the Boy Scouts of America. We went to Texas for a two week training and we did the, 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 the questionnaires before we arrived. And then once we got there, they sort of said, well, now we're going to tell you what you are. And I was like, "Well, I already know who I am. That's the kind of person I was then." Ah, you don't have to tell me. I know who I am. They said we have an Attila the Hun in the room, and 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 they they, they started saying, uh, and I was like, "Oh no, who, who is this person?" He said, "Chris Bryant, where are you?" And and so I, I could not believe, but I was, I, I was, uh, I was not in in the place where I maybe thought I could or should be uh, in the in the world standing. But with that being said, I think that truly what we've got to understand is that competitive me that existed in in playing college football and and growing up uh, the youngest of seven children, which will make you competitive as well. um, Collaboration is key. So um, I have really learned that from several good leaders who have taught me that uh, investment in others is the right investment. Um, And when you can lean into another organization, uh, so I do a lot of work with the Boy Scouts. And I've heard over the past several years that there, there has to be a lot of um, there has to be a lot of sort of discrepancy and headbutting with the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts organizations right now because boys have now uh, opened up their organization for girls to participate in the program. So I had a friend come to me and say, "Well, the Girl Scouts must be really upset with you guys that that now the Boy Scouts are are sort of getting into the market share of 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 Girl Scouts." And so, so what's that relationship like? Here's the answer that I gave to that person: the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts together nationally are only serving 6% of total available youth population. Both of us need to get over ourselves and worry about the ninety of, 94% of customers we're not reaching. So just let that be sort of our calling card that regardless of what we may think about competition, collaboration truly is an opportunity for all of us to lean in, to uplift one another, to help each other, to love one another. And there are so many seeds to be sown together. Hugh, you started the question with, uh, a, a number of donors, uh, it's it's a fact that donors have six to seven organizations that they truly believe in and they lean into. Now, all of us probably give to 20 or well, let's just say we give to 20 nonprofits through the year. You stop and put a little bit of money at the Salvation Army. There's dang, you You gave five bucks and you're done. So you're going to give to 20 nonprofits over the course of a year. But you're really studies show you're really going to lean into those five, six or seven um, you just want to know where you are with your donors. One of the questions I always ask my donors when I have those sit-down visits, I say, you know, t- tell me who your top five uh, organizations that you love to be involved in are, and uh, and tell me more about that. And then the follow-up question is, where do we rank amongst your, your top five? Where, where does CVCC Educational Foundation fall? Um, those are questions that are good to ask. Um, they're tough questions to ask, but your donors are okay with sharing that information, and if they're not, they'll tell you, but oftentimes, they'll tell you, and you may be pleasantly surprised.
0: Those are just astounding. Nobody, like I said at the beginning of this, it's going to be a very unique interview in seven and a half years. They're all very different. So Chris Bryant, um, this has been so informative, so encouraging, and to to be focused on the leader as an influencer, and all of what you're talking about is so critical. What um, Parting thought or tip or challenge, do you want to leave people with today?
1: I'm really going to piggyback on the word that you just used. My my 18 year old son said this just yesterday. He used the word influencer. All my life, I thought that you could be a controller, a leader, a dictator, uh, a captain. The most relevant word that I think really circulates amongst our young teens today is influencer. Did you know that there are people for a living, all they do is influence other members of the society? Think about that. There are folks that have YouTube um, uh, followers or followship of a million people. And sometimes I think, it, what did this person do? How did they uh, they aspire to become this? What expertise do they have to be an influencer? Um, it's belief, it's passion. And so if you have love and joy and passion and belief in your heart and you're called to serve something greater than yourself, you're an influencer. So the only parting comment that I'll have is, Always look to a brighter day. Always understand that it's our job to push advancement and growth. And, and then lastly, be an influential person for good. Um, if, if you've built a team of good people and you have good people surround you, man, good things are gonna happen.
0: Chris Bryant, thank you so much for this helpful interview today and being our guest on the Nonprofit Exchange.
1: You're welcome. I hope that there's at least one nugget in there somewhere.
0: There is. Thank you so much. Thanks you. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.